left off last week, we barely touched on verse 3 in Titus chapter 3. And so we'll um, pick up there. We'll spend a little more time or a bit more time in verse 3 because it is very much so connected. All of it's very much so connected to the rest of uh, the last few verses we'll be looking at tonight. So uh, I want to spend the time on verse 3 that... Um, that we need to spend. So, um, as we continue in this last chapter of um, Titus, chapter 3, of Paul's letter to Titus, and we're reminded that um, his words, Paul's words, are written uh, in front of the backdrop of the truth that Christians then, as well as Christians today, are living in a dark world. A world full of sin and sinful people, and some of whom are believers in Jesus Christ and some who are not. That's what the world is made up of, right? That, that's really all there is. There are, are no other categories of human beings, right? A person is either a child of God or a child of the devil. And we sometimes forget or, like the world, think that the world is made up of basically good people, but the Bible tells us differently. The Bible tells us that no one is good, not even one. And the world is actually made up of believers and unbelievers, right? Christian and non-Christian, born again and dead in trespasses and sins, the unrighteous and the righteous in Christ. There's really only two categories of people in the world, and that's it. Christianity is the only true religion. That's a statement that a lot of people don't like to say or like to hear, but if we're to believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, then we can't believe there's some other way. Um, Biblical Christianity is the only place where redeemed people are found. It's the only place where anyone is or ever will be saved from the penalty of their sin, and no other religion is valid or true. They are all pagan and and idolatry, leaving their followers condemned in their sin, where you and I once were. Um, This is why the way Christians live in this world is so vital to to others coming to the truth of Jesus Christ. Not that God could not reach them without us, but God has chosen to use us as his ambassadors to the world. That's the way it is. That's what God has chosen. That's why he's left us here and given us commands to go and bring the gospel to a lost and dying world. So that's why we're here. And Paul has been reminding Titus about the way the people of the church should be conducting their lives in front of a watching world. And he's commanded that we live in such a way as to be ready for every good work. We talked about that last week. And it's not easy as we're confronted by the evil all around us. Uh, The world wants to do everything it can to make us behave not Christian, right? To behave in ungodly ways. Um, And we can easily become callous and bitter toward the world and all of its sin as we see it increasing and increasing all the time. Um, But we must not become callous 
We must maintain, so to speak, a hatred for sin. You can have a hatred for sin, a hatred for the effects of sin in the world, but we need to maintain a love for the people who are caught up in and imprisoned by sin. And we can maintain an attitude of love and compassion for the lost by remembering where we came from. And, and that's what we're looking at tonight. And that's what Paul's getting at. Um, so read with me, if you will, as we consider um, the words of Scripture calling us to remember where we came from. So in chapter 3 of Titus, starting in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now let's pray tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for <coughs> this opportunity to come together to sing praises to you, to open your word, to hear what it says, to hear what we need to be reminded of. We thank you for your spirit that teaches us all things that we can trust and count on you, Lord, to open our eyes and our ears as you have already, as Christians, given us new life, given us ears to hear and eyes to see, and given us understanding as we read and hear your word. So we ask for help tonight as we do so. We ask that you would give us clarity, and that we would be reminded how we ought to live our lives among a watching world. And we give you praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's realize for a moment that we can very easily dismiss the people of the world as lost causes. Right? How, how easy do you think it is to dismiss people as lost causes? Pretty easy when we look at what's going on, right? And you can see someone's behavior perhaps even getting worse and worse and worse. We can begin to think they're a lost cause. And to be sure, some of them are. But can you tell me which ones? <laughs> it's interesting to think about, right? We, we know that there are lost causes. The scripture tells us that not everyone is saved. But we don't know who they are. And God hasn't seen fit to put a flashing sign above the heads of everybody that's a lost cause. Right? So we, we just don't know. Um, we, um, and when I say lost cause, I'm talking about someone who will never be saved. There are those who will never be saved um, because they will not come to faith in Christ. 
Uh, they will not be saved by God. Um, but we cannot know who they are. So we look at unbelievers, and we should look at unbelievers with compassion, not making judgments about whether that one will be saved or not. Um, if we cannot know who is a lost cause, how should we view those who are lost then? That's kind of the question we have to ask ourselves. If, if I can't tell who the lost causes are, then how should I view all of those who are lost? What do you guys think? Yeah? Right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's all you can really do. I mean, you can you can share the truth with people, but if it just makes them angry and they're rejecting it, we shouldn't be surprised by that. But we can keep praying for them, like you're, yeah, it does, it, yeah, it makes us feel bad. Right, well, and that's the perfect example of somebody who we might, I'm not, I'm not saying this is you, but we might have a tendency to write off as a lost cause because of the constant rejection, because of the lack of understanding. We could easily fall into writing that person off and, and then stop praying for them, stop sharing the truth with them. Well, that's good. A and that's the point of this passage tonight, is we want to be compassionate towards those people. We don't know if they're a lost cause or not. We know we can know if someone's lost, but we don't know if they're a lost cause, right? The scripture tells us we can know if someone's a believer or not a believer, but you and I can't know if they will ever become a believer or not. Only God knows that. So we don't, we don't treat anyone as a lost cause. Uh, but I, I think that's part of what Paul is dealing with here with Titus tonight is, is that there is a reality, that there is a tendency as believers to sort of become arrogant um, and dismissive of other people because of, you know, where we're at in Christ and we forget where we came from. And that's why he's drawing a, or he's putting a focus on this tonight. But if those, if we don't know who is a lost cause, then those who are lost, we should really view as people who God might save. Right? They're they're a mission field. They're uh, they're those who need to hear the gospel. Uh, they're they're as people who don't yet know any better, like you used to be, like I used to be. Um, so. We all know people and perhaps even family members who are not believers. And how easy is it to get really frustrated with them? It can be very frustrating. And how easy is it to talk about their 
or other peoples who are, who are lost and talk about their sinfulness to other Christians and come across as sort of very self-righteous? Um, how can we have those conversations without crossing the line into thinking they're, they're stupid, right? And we're smart. Um, what is the re- reality of the situation? Well, it's not that they're stupid and that we're smart. So we have to cast that aside right away. You know, we're not Christians because we're smart. <coughs> it's because we're saved, right? The truth is, God gave us spiritual sight, and he's left them in their blindness, right? He's, he's given us ears to hear the truth, and he's left them in their deafness. And God gave, gave us a heart of flesh, and he's left them with their heart of stone. We don't know for how long. We don't know if he will save them or not, but at the current time when we're talking about this situation, that's their state. But we have to remember where we came from. So it's not about smart or stupid. It's about what God has done in a person or what God has not done in a person. God called us. He drew us to himself, caused us to be born again, and he's left them dead in their trespasses and sins, at least for now. So we treat them as a mission field. We treat them as someone who needs to hear the gospel. Julie, did you have something? It may have taken everything in them to get out of bed and show up at church that morning. And if they come to a place and everyone ignores them, what are they left to think? You know, so yeah. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, I'd hate for that to happen. So I think we're pretty good here about, about greeting people. You ca- at our church, you have to kind of want to be left alone, you know, in, in to some degree, <laughs> and then try to hide from everybody. But uh, someone will... Someone will make contact with you in our church, typically, which is a good thing. Notice, though, in the passage of Scripture, or, or in this whole discussion that we just talked about, where, as we're talking about lost people and where they are, where we came from, and what, what God has done, we look at a common thread there, and that common thread is, is that God is the one acting. God is acting sovereignly, to save some and not others yet. It, it may be that he never saves them, but we won't know that. Um, but he, we can clearly see that he has saved some and he has not saved others. That's just the state of things as we have it. Um, but the common thread is that it is God acting. If, if we're thinking we're different because we figured things out, we're wrong. Right? If we think we're different because we did certain things, we're wrong. The only difference between Christians now and unbelievers is the sovereign will of God that has transformed us. That's it. A work of God has done this, not us. And so to understand this, then, is to be compassionate to lost people. To understand and remember this is to be grounded in reality and to be humble in, in before a lost world. To forget this is to be arrogant, to be self-righteous, and to even to be a stumbling block to any who might come to Christ for salvation. 
To forget this is to shine a light on ourselves and not on a loving Savior. Right? So we want to remember that where we came from. And that's, that's what Paul is dealing with. It's for these reasons that we need, we need the contents of verse 3 to be behind uh, any conversations about sinfulness with others. If we're talking about others' sinfulness, we need to have verse 3 in our minds because it holds us accountable. It keeps us grounded in reality and where we came from. We're in Titus 3, verse 3 right now, by the way. Um, uh, it's why we need, we need verse 3 to be a part of our evangelism efforts. If we're going to go and, and share the gospel with others, how many people hear someone sharing the gospel and their immediate thought is, you're judging me, you think you're better than me. It happens all the time. And that's why the one sharing needs to be humble, needs to be able to help them understand that this is a place where they came from. And again, not they didn't end up a Christian because of their own self-effort. Um, we need to be ready to admit to others, we too are sinful. We too were where you're at, but for God, right? So do you want to remain grounded in reality and humble before others? Then remember verse 3, which says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's how the scriptures describe unbelievers, and that's how the scriptures describe you prior to your salvation. And this, admitting this or applying this to our former way of life, it doesn't lessen our impact on others. Right? It, uh, it doesn't decrease our credibility in their eyes. In fact, it shows that we too needed what we're calling them to. We're calling them to repent and turn to Christ. We needed the same thing. We needed someone to tell us that as well. Um, we needed the work of Christ in our lives to change our circumstances, to change our, our status before God. Um, and so we're, we're sharing something with them that we too had to, had to have in our own lives. So it doesn't, to, to hold to this, to be willing to tell others that this was our state before we were saved isn't something that decreases our credibility. In fact, it should, it should increase our credibility because we're putting all the credibility on Christ and not on ourselves. And this is the, the negative but necessary truth to remember. We too were lost. Paul describes not only current believers with these words, but Christians as having formally fit this profile. Uh, current unbelievers fit that profile. Now, Christians now formerly fit that profile. We know it's no longer true for the Christian because Paul says uh, in our passage here, um, he says we were once. Right, this is past tense. It's no longer true of Christians. This is a constant refrain from Paul in the scriptures uh, when talking about Christians and their former way of life. Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. 
Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you. So this past tense language when talking to Christians is throughout uh, Paul's writings. And it's intended, always intended for the same thing, that we would, we would look back, we would be reminded. I was something. God changed me. I am now a new creation. And so here in our text, Paul lays out what, what they were. Right? As, as he's telling Titus to tell this to the people, by extension us, what were we? What, what were they? How were they? How they were before God intervened in their lives, and this is true of you and I as Christians as well. And also notice here that Paul includes himself in in this category. He's not excluding himself. He's no different in anyone else in that he too was once something else. He he told Timothy, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. He knew where he came from. And we know, if we know about Saul's uh, salvation experience on the road to Damascus, we know what kind of person he was as a persecutor of the church. We know what God did to save him. Perhaps he would have been in that category. In some Christians' minds, he's a lost cause. Uh, but we certainly see and know now that Paul was, was no lost cause. So we should not put people in that category either. Titus knew that Paul was not excluding himself from needing to remember this truth, that he and the rest of us were once, and he gives a list, right? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's quite a list. <laughs> um, and again, it is what, it's what unbelievers are now, but what the rest of us used to be, so be careful not to be acting like or sounding like you were, you were different. You were different, and that's why God saved you. That's not the case. Right? We weren't different from the unbeliever now because we were an unbeliever. God didn't save us because we were different. That's not why God saved you. He saved you because you were those things, and he was your only hope. You needed him or you would have always remained his enemy like the rest of mankind. And he saved you because of his own sovereign will. So being foolish in this context is, is one who has a complete lack of understanding and is totally ignorant. That's basically the meaning of foolish here. And not that they're not an intelligent person in other areas. But this is about being totally ignorant in regard to a certain subject. Okay, in this case, Paul's referring to those who are completely ignorant of their own sin and its devastating consequences in their life. Right? And, and ignorant of the God who created them and who offers salvation and the forgiveness of sins. This is the state of every unbeliever. Even those in the world who are the most educated, most well-spoken, um, the most knowledgeable beyond most other people. There are plenty of people in this world that have tremendous knowledge about a lot of things, but who at the same time can be, be completely ignorant, be foolish when it comes to 
their own sinfulness and lostness, and they're standing before a holy God. And so that's why this, this is not calling every unbeliever foolish in the sense that they don't know anything about anything. It's, it's talking about their relationship to God, their, their understanding of who they are uh, in their sin and what they need from God. And he says, we were once disobedient, that is, not following the law of the Lord and not holding his word as our authority. We were disobedient because we had no ability to be otherwise. Okay, Again, this is all past tense. We had no ability to be other than disobedient. When a person is a child of the devil, they're going to do the works of their father, the devil. Uh, they cannot do otherwise. And this is why God destroyed every human being on the planet except for eight people in the flood. And the scriptures makes God's reasoning clear, Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's God declaring the state of man. And, and it's not man making that up. Hebrews 11-6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. And next he says, we're led astray. And some of your Bibles might say, deceived. Um, and the idea here is that unbelievers have been led astray. They've been led astray by their own lack of knowledge, led astray by continuing to believe lies about themselves and God. What they think is king, not what is true. Right In their lives, that's, that's how they work. How does a person's sincerely held belief affect truth? What do you guys think? How does a person's sincerely held belief affect truth? Or does it? What do you think? There are a lot of very sincere people out there believing stuff. Right. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't affect truth. You and I thinking or believing a thing doesn't make it true. Right? What a person believes about something, including very deep convictions about something, no matter how sincere a person is, it doesn't make that thing true or not true. Christ is Savior and Lord. That is either true or it's not true. There's, not, there's no other option. It's either true or it isn't. But our sincerely held belief about it doesn't make it true or not true. Someone who doesn't believe Christ is the Savior doesn't make Christ not the Savior. A thing is true because God has declared it to be true. So that's kind of the question that people have to ask themselves is, I believe a lot of things. The question is, is it true or not? But the world today wants to say, if you believe it, it's true. It's true for you. So therefore, this person can believe that thing, and that person can believe that thing. They completely oppose each other, but they can both be true, and that's not reality. But that's where the world is living. And this problem goes along with being foolish and with being disobedient. And these things are all connected. We can, we can kind of see in this list here the, the connection between all of these. Um, our foolishness and disobedience bring about the next things on the list, we, too, were once slaves to various passions and pleasures. And passions sometimes translates as lusts. Your Bible might say lusts there. And these are sinful desires, to be sure. 
Pleasures are those things that a person pursues sinfully. That's what's being talked about here. This is about never being satisfied in your efforts to gratify self. This could take something that is not sinful and turn it into something sinful. Or it could be something that is already sinful. <coughs> and this is what a person's life becomes about. Um, and that is the next thing we used to be or do. He says we were passing our days in malice and envy. And passing our days is like saying living our lives. Another way of saying we live our lives from day to day in this way. And he says in malice and envy. The life lived is full of malice and envy. Malice and envy are, in this case, the normal behavior of the person, not just an every so often slip up. It's how they pass their days. It's how they live. Malice is describing the person who is evil. That is that is everyone. And malice is not an accident. It is a person who, who goes about being malicious or being e- evil intentionally. And this is where people want to push back, isn't it? Right, they say, I'm not a malicious person. But what do they mean by that? If you're telling somebody about what the Bible says about them, that it describes you in this way, and they say, no, that's not me, what do they mean by that? Yeah. Yeah, they don't know they are, right? They, they would be thinking, well, I don't hurt people or plot against people. Right? I, I'm a good person. That's usually what, what you would hear because that's what people think. <clears throat> and again, that's, that's only in comparison to other evil people. It's easy for us to compare ourselves to other sinful people and say, I'm a good person. But again, that's not the standard. The standard is Christ. In Mark 10, 18, Jesus is answering the question when someone called him good. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So we see two things going on there that that he's telling us very clearly there is no one who's good. No one who's good except God. And so he's also there claiming to be God. That's a good verse for answering that question, did Jesus ever claim to be God? That's absolutely true. That is very true. Again, when I when I ask the question and I talk about why people push back against the statement that they're evil or they're malicious, the Bible says they are, they want to push back because they don't see themselves as that. But we can't see all the angles where we sin. We can't we don't know all the ways and we we, we sin so much we can't keep track of it all. We can keep track of the big things. I didn't murder any, murder anybody today. Uh, I can keep track of that, right? Um, and that's usually where we want to stop is at things like that. But we also forget that, well, I, I put myself in that category by hating someone. 
Um, and so, yeah, we can't keep track of all the ways in which we sin, so we're not a good judge of whether or not we're malicious. Uh, and there are other ways of being malicious rather than just, you know, sitting in a dark room plotting against someone. Um, quoting Psalm 53, in Romans 3.12, Paul said, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this is a biblical truth in both, both Old Testament and New Testament. Um, it's throughout the scriptures. So how can anyone else ever claim to be good then? They can't. We can't. They can't. No one can claim to be good. I mean, if we're going to say that the Bible is our authority, then we have to agree with the Bible. It says no one's good. I should probably believe what the Bible says, even though it's kind of hard for me to grasp because when I think of my goodness or not goodness, I'm comparing myself to other people. But we always forget God is the standard. Perfect, sinless righteousness is the standard. And we don't meet it. So we, we can't claim to be good. And envy uh, also marked our lives before Christ. This is, envy is a very destructive sin, and one that Paul makes clear here was the natural bent of Christians before, before God changed them, when they were unbelievers. Well, how would you define envy and what it leads to? What are your thoughts on that? How would you define envy and what it leads to? So wanting what someone else has so bad that you go against what you know is right to get that thing. Yeah. I was looking through commentaries and uh, John MacArthur said this about envy. He said, envy is a sin that carries its own reward. It guarantees its own frustration and disappointment. By definition, the envious person cannot be satisfied with what he has and will always crave for more. His evil desires and pleasures are insatiable, and he cannot abide another person's having something that he himself does not have or having more of something than he himself has. And we see that all the time in our world. Our world is driven by what other people have and trying to have what other people have. And James talks about this. In chapter 4 of James, he gives us a pretty good example of envy and what it what it leads to in chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 it says what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel it's pretty clear what the sin of envy leads to amazing that just the desire to have something that you don't have can lead one to murder another person. And it happens all the time. All right? It's, it's such, sin is just terrible. And the sin of envy is, is really bad. All sin is bad, but you know what I mean. 
But the Lord has graciously freed Christians from that way of life. Again, it used to be who you were. But don't forget it. And that's the point. It used to be that used to be you. You used to live in that way. But you don't now. But I'm reminding you so you don't forget it. Because you're going to have conversations with people. And you're going to need to remember so that you don't become prideful and arrogant thinking you accomplished something, so therefore you're not like that anymore. Um, the last thing he says is that we used to be hated by others and we hated one another. And we can see how this is also connected to envy. We can clearly see how hatred fits into that mixture. You, you have to hate someone to kill them because you want that thing they have. Why do people typically hate other people? What do you think? Why do you... What are some of the reasons people hate other people? Yeah. great yeah and that gets to one of those reasons why people hate is because they've done something against you or someone else someone that you love right so we we hate sometimes because of something people do against us or someone else what are some other reasons why we hate jealousy okay sure kind of goes back to envy a little bit others So maybe we don't like their, their attitude about something or maybe their lifestyle. Is that what you're talking about? So it's not against us per se. We don't like it. So maybe we would hate them, yeah? What was that? Okay, yeah, we don't, we don't like what they stand for, what they believe. Well, I guess you're walking a line there. You have to know whether you hate them or not. But it's one thing it's one thing to not enjoy being around somebody because maybe of the way they are or something like that. But it's another to hate them. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, then that's something we have to, as Christians, sort of monitor in ourselves. Make sure we don't cross that line. You just have to be careful of, I guess, of what you do and how you treat them. It could be. 
if you hated them, if you treated them in an un- unchristian fashion. I mean, if they called you and said, can you help me with this? Do you refuse to help them with it because you don't like them? Um, you know, right. So uh, there's things you can check, you know, kind of check yourself on and make sure you're not sinfully, acting sinfully towards someone. Right. That's fine. I don't, I don't think that's sinful. I think you ha- just have to be careful of ever, of ever crossing that line into sinfulness. Right? Uh, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. Not all people are wonderful. Probably a <coughs> mm-hmm. right. Well, and the scripture tells us to you know to warn someone a couple times, and if they refuse to listen, then have nothing to do with them. So that's sort of like what you're talking about, but even that could turn into hatred if if we turned it into something if we were being hateful in what we were doing. It's one thing if we're avoiding them because maybe they're a bad influence or maybe they, they're teaching what's false or something like that, but we wouldn't want to be hateful towards them or have hatred in our heart towards them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, how do you sort that out, the difference between a hatred or a, did you say a righteous anger? Righteous, righteous indignation? Yeah. Right. Right. I think, again, motivation is something we would have to check our own hearts, or maybe it would take someone else hearing us talk to say, he was asking, how do you tell the difference between a hatred for somebody, and a righteous indignation. And so I, I think that's that goes to motivation. It could be something, it should be something we would monitor in ourselves again, but it could be something that someone else, as they hear you talk about that person, they might hear something in what you say and say, you know what? Th- what I hear you saying is this, it really sounds like you're unrighteously angry against them, or you're it sounds like hatred towards them. And then we would it would behoove us to listen to that brother or sister who might be saying that. But we would have to check our motivation for that. I think a lot of people might use that as an excuse. Well, what they're doing is sinful, so I have a righteous indignation. And they're all the while they're being sinful and they're dealing with that person or something. But Yes. Yes, God expects us to love that person. You know, the thing is, the thing we have to remember, again, that goes back to this passage. We have to remember who we once were. We were enemies of God. He didn't come and save us once we stopped being his enemy or stopped hating him or being mean towards him. He saved us out of that. He saved us in spite of that. So, 
and then calls us to forgive others as he has forgiven us. And so we, we do have to come back to remembering where, where, where do we come from? I cannot behave towards this person in a dismissive fashion thinking they're a lost cause or I'm better than them because look how sinful they are and we forget all, all the while that's exactly who I was. And yet God loved me. So the answer to your question is yes, we are, we are commanded to love. We're commanded to love everyone. That doesn't mean you're best friends with everyone, but we are commanded to love everyone. that is a loving thing to do. It is never a loving thing to affirm people in their sin. Your sin is okay. That's just fine with God. That is not a loving thing. But when we do the loving thing, which is share the truth with them, then that's when the world says that's unloving. It, the world flips things upside down. Exactly. That's actually that's a really good thing that we should do is is think of ourselves in that way. One, especially in those times when someone's irritating us or something, is to ask ourselves, "I wonder how I irritate people." I mean, it should cause us to to be slow to speak and quick to listen. It should cause us to be purposeful about the things we say and do. Be thoughtful before we do things and when we're interacting with other people. I think it's a good way to to help protect against becoming. Um, arrogant and those kinds of things, prideful. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it is hard to love some people. Um, if everyone was lovable like me, you know, things would be a lot better. <laughs> but that's kind of what we think about ourselves, isn't it? it? Without actually saying it or maybe without that thought actually coming in our head, that's sort of how we behave, sort of how we think about ourselves. When we totally dismiss how we could affect other people, in, the, in a way, we're, the same, we're saying the same thing as, I'm just a lovable person. I don't know what everybody else's problem is. All right, so we want to be careful about that. Um, and we can see why this is, this is something we had to be delivered from. Right, That way of life, that way of living is something we had to be delivered from. Why we should not forget that we used to live that way. And thinking about the some of the dumb reasons why people hate each other, we can see that we mostly hate because people are not like us, right? They don't do what we do or the way we would do it. And, and ultimately that, you know, can lead to hatred. It's usually, this is all about self. Now if I hate someone, it's because I love myself and they're not doing something right. They're not doing something the way I want it done. Um, and we can also see how any attitude of hatred toward someone else can keep us from desiring to share the gospel with them, can't it? 
I mean, if we hate someone, we're not going to share the gospel with them. We're not going to pray for them, <laughs> you know. But when, when we can change that around and remember where we came from and how God loved us and how God forgave us, that will allow us to be more compassionate to, to those who are lost still. Because um, we can sort of decide that they're not deserving of God's love or, the, or back to that idea of them being a lost cause. We can make that decision, right? I've decided they're a lost cause. Um, but you and, I, you and I were not deserving of God's loving kindness and his forgiveness when he saved us. Uh, it definitely needs to be a thing of the past for us, living that way. And by God's grace, um, it is and will continue to be that we will be actually loving towards people and compassionate towards people. Um, but then God, then Paul gets to the positive. He gets to what took us from that old life to the new life. And again, the reminder is not just for us to remember what God did for us, but that in in our compassion for those who are still bound up in sin and rebellion, we would offer the same thing to them by sharing the truth with them. Not that we would, you know, be so grateful for what God did for us, but then just keep it to ourselves. We want to share that with other people so they too uh, can benefit from God's salvation. Let's look at the next verses and see the good news that Paul recounts. And as he's been laying out the terrible state we used to be in, a person might tend to be downcast going through all of that, but look how Paul turns it around. Yes, you were once living that way, but verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The point being, <coughs> we, were, we were done for. Right? We were lost without hope because of our wicked sinfulness before a holy God, but God was good to us. He loved us. He was kind to us. He saved us from eternal condemnation. That's Paul's point. Look at what you were. Look at where you came from. But God intervened. Right? We see some of God's attributes here and that uh, they are some of his um, communicable attributes. We've been talking about that in Sunday school. Those attributes he's shared with us or that we also possess because we are created in the image of God. The difference being you and I do not perfectly embody these attributes. God does, but we do not perfectly exhibit them. And here we see God's goodness in verse 4, God's loving kindness in verse 4, God's mercy in verse 5. And this is what we, talking about mercy, this is what we need and what only God can grant. It relates to affliction and the one who has the power to bring about relief. It has in view the sinner and his sin. Mercy is God bringing about change in the one who cannot change themselves. It is God continuing to act in sanctification. As God sanctifies us throughout our lives, he is continually being merciful towards us. God's grace, we see in verse 7, and this relates to 
guilt and the, the condition of the sinner before a holy God who is the one who judges all men. Grace is the judge forgiving the sinner, not overlooking sin, but pardoning sin on the basis of the substitute, Jesus Christ. Right? God doesn't just ignore sin. Sin is still punished. But, but in His grace, He has forgiven the sinner because of the work of Christ. And these are necessary, these attributes of God there that we just looked at, they're, they're necessary. They're necessary acts on God's part in making possible what Paul describes as the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is about new life in Christ. Uh, what was dead is made alive supernaturally. This is the new birth or being born again. It's the only way one will ever be given access into God's kingdom is by the washing of regeneration. And, and we have to see here what Paul says is that God did this. You didn't do it. God did this. And Jesus told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. And then the question is, well, how do I obtain the washing of regeneration? Nicodemus asked that question after Jesus made his statement. In John 3, 4, and 5, it says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is not, this is not Jesus talking about being born of water in the sense of baptism. John's using water here because we understand that water is used to wash away dirt. We get this concept. The point is, is that this is a spiritual reality. It is a spiritual washing and regeneration. The point is not to focus on a reference to water beyond just our understanding of that it cleanses. It washes away what is filthy. Um, but the point really is to focus on the concept of what, what the water does. Right? Man is sinful and dirty and needs to be washed. And that takes place through the new birth by the Spirit of God. It's a spiritual reality. If you turn with me, I'm going to give you an, another example. Turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians 5. Okay, Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. And listen to this and how similar it sounds. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And again, you see, this is also not talking about baptism, though these verses are often used to say, see, you have to be baptized to be saved, right? They want to attach the necessity of baptism, the act of baptism for being saved, but that's not what's being talked about here. It's using water in the same way as, as our other passage in Titus, as a way for you and I to grasp the concept that something 
was dirty. Something was blemished and needed to be washed. And in this instance, the thing doing the washing is what? In the Ephesians 5 passage, what is the thing doing the washing? Through the Word, right? This, the Word of God is the thing doing the washing in that sense. But it's using water in the same way so that you and I can understand this concept. And so in our passage in Titus, that's the same thing. That's what Paul's referring to here and saying that God did this by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the, what the work of the Spirit is in the unbeliever, transforming them, bringing about new birth, that is a washing. It's a spiritual reality. And this is accomplished by God through His Spirit. The very thing we needed, the only thing that could change our fate is the very thing that God did. Uh, they, the key here is that it is an act of God, completely an act of God on our behalf. It's an amazing truth. It's, it's something that we should rejoice in, that God would do this for sinful people. So in His mercy, God did it. Because it is what we needed and what only He could do. We, we also can't skip over the clear teaching Paul gives here in verse 5, and that is the clear language reminding Titus that this salvation through the goodness and loving kindness of God was not done because of righteous things we did. Again, this is a theme throughout Scripture. Salvation does not come by works of the law. Look at verse 5 again. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We could say this another way. He did not save us because we ourselves did righteous things. And honestly, could the Scriptures be any clearer on the subject of salvation not being by works. So many places in the scripture, it's, it's so clear, yet we, people constantly want to push back against that. We just desperately want to have something to do with our salvation. I have to have contributed to it in some way instead of just being grateful and thankful to God for his loving kindness his mercy and His grace. The scriptures go out of their way to make this point clear to us. We don't play a part in our salvation. We need to get, get over that debate as Christians. It's only a debate when we ignore the Bible's clear teaching. It shouldn't be a debate for us as Christians that we did not save ourselves. We did not do enough righteous things to be saved. God does the saving according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul expands on this more in verses 6 and 7. It says, whom he, whom he, referring to the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And here we can see the, the working of the triune God in salvation, all three persons of the Trinity are active in salvation. This is a, a very strong reminder to Titus. Not that he didn't already know these things, and not that you and I don't already know these things, that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But how great is it 
in the midst of living in this dark world and all the things we see around us to be reminded that, that God has forgiven our sins, that we have been washed by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that God has poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus. And when, when the scriptures here say that this is done through Jesus Christ, our Savior, what is he referring to? He's referring to the sinless life that Christ lived, to the uh, horrible death and suffering that Christ died, to the wrath of God being poured out on him on our behalf, his death, his resurrection, all of it. That's what it means when he's saying, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so that being justified by his grace, here we see that other attribute of God, his grace, which we possess. That is a communicable attribute of God, though we are not as gracious as God is. Um, but we are justified by his grace. that We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so this is, this is Paul's reminder to Titus of as we look at all of chapter 2 and see all the commands of how Christians should be living with one another and within the church and then how we should be living before a sinful and watching world um, that we should remember where we came from so that we can have compassion on those who are still lost so that we will desire to love them enough to share the truth with them so that they too can benefit from this. And what is the benefit? He's just told us the benefit, right? salvation because of God's loving kindness, his grace, his mercy through the work of Jesus Christ, the re regeneration, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are justified by grace. Um, we are made right before God through Christ. His righteousness is what we are clothed in, not our own righteousness. Uh, and we have the hope of eternal life. So what an encouragement for them to be able to hear that and be reminded of that, that great thing. And for you and I, too, to be reminded of that. But don't forget where we came from. So we can maintain our compassion for those who are still led astray and deceived, living their lives in malice and envy and hating uh, one another and being hated by others. And we should have compassion on them. And, and it's, it can be especially frustrating with family members, but how much more so should we have compassion and love towards them it's hard when they reject it. When you share the truth, they'll reject it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't share the truth and shouldn't call them to repent because that's the loving thing to do. So we'll, we'll ask God to help us. Because like you were saying, how do you talk to this person, right? Uh, we need to ask God to help us to be able to talk, be able to say, say the truth in a loving way and to be patient with others. So this is Paul's reminder to Titus, not only for himself personally, but he needs to be telling this to all the elders that he'll be putting in place so that they can teach it to all the people so that Christians will know how to behave and Christians will know how to live in this world that we're all living in. Okay? Well, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this evening. Uh, thank you for this reminder. I pray, Lord, that we would not forget where we came from, that we are not where we are as Christians because of our great achievements or because we were so smart that we figured things out. And Lord, we are only seen as righteous in your eyes because you have 
called us and you have drawn us to yourself. You have saved us. It's by grace, through faith, Lord, in Christ Jesus, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection. Lord, we trust in the work of Christ. I pray that our thoughts of standing before you and ever answering the question, why should we be let in, may it not ever start with, with I. May we always point to Christ, be ever grateful for his righteousness imputed to us through faith. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Help us, Lord, to be compassionate toward others who are unbelievers, who are in the place where we used to be. May we never be arrogant, thinking we're better than them, or even coming across as if we're better than them. Help us to have kind words, patient words. I pray, Lord, you'd give us godly words. May your, your scriptures be on our lips as we share the truth with people. And may you give them ears to hear, and eyes to see, that they too may benefit from the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. We will ask all these things in his name. Amen.